title you can see from the bulletin is To Judge Righteous Judgment, and it's coming from verse 24. It is obvious in our context, you'll notice that they, that is the Jews, the multitudes that were there present, made a judgment in regard to Jesus Christ. Not only as to his person, but they also made a judgment in regards to the work that he had performed, a particular miracle which we'll reference in a few moments. This is opening up a door, the idea of judgment, that affects all of our lives and we're involved in actually in an ongoing basis. So I want to lay a foundation right at the beginning to get us to think before we go on and deal with the text in relationship to what the Lord Jesus Christ has said as we continue in our exposition here in John chapter 7. The area of judging, when it comes to judging people, when it comes to judging circumstances, when it comes to judging events, when it comes to judging decisions, like everything else in life, our judging is affected by, number one, our own subjective biases, if we're honest. We are affecting our decisions based on our biases, and it is also affected by, and you cannot get away from this, the world that we live in. But I want to tell you right away that what it should be molded by more than those things is the Word of God. Our judging should be molded by what we understand God has said. And yet we know it's a reality of life, as we'll see as we go through this text, that we do judge based upon our biases and, and what the world has said we should do or the effect. Let me just bring you up to date on things you've heard before, but you know is true in our lives. We are influenced today in the 21st century, in the year almost 2010 now, we're almost there. We are interest, uh, influenced excuse me, tremendously by multicultural concepts, by the concept of all-inclusive thinking. We can't get away from it. Econ uh, not economical, but... I wanted to say ecumenical, ecumenical unity. We are affected by advances in technological communications, which have established a universal social networking that has, by the way, tremendously affected the church of Jesus Christ, both positively and negatively. We are told, in case you're not aware of it, there really are no absolutes. That is the society you are living in today, whether you know it or not. Generally speaking, throughout the world, we are told there are no absolutes. There is no black. There is no white. That everything is a shade of gray. There is no right and wrong. And that's why we are to be tolerant of everybody in every situation. That has affected our thinking. Everything that is done is second-guessed. We do it every day, whether we realize it or not. We are living in a society that has changed tremendously so that everybody sues everyone for everything or anything. I'll give you a simple illustration of that. I can remember we're almost to the snowy season. We might not want to think about that. 
But I can remember going sledding different places, and if you ran into a bench in a park, uh, you were in a neighbor's yard, and you ran down and hit a rock, you went home crying, and your parents said you should have gone around the rock. You should have watched out for the bench. Today, it's find out who it is, let's check the city, let's do this, and we sue everybody because my child shouldn't have got hurt. That's reality. That's the world we live in. Everyone, basically, that's I know a generic statement, but generally wants peace at all costs. We even want it in our families. Kids, keep quiet. Why? I just can't stand the noise. We don't want to find out what was right, what was wrong, what happened in the situation. Just keep quiet. We just want peace. We want it at all costs. Nothing is supposed to go wrong in our schedules. Nothing. We're never supposed to be deviated from anything. We don't want to change in our schedule. Our day is supposed to be perfect. As Christians, everything's supposed to happen just the right way. We're never supposed to get sick. We never get the flu. We never get colds. We never want a flat tire. We never want an act. The machines that are, are like the washing machine, the dryer, is never supposed to break down. You know, all of these things. We don't want anything to go wrong. Think about it. It's really true. Laws are laws that are made and regulations are made to make everybody happy. We've got to cover everybody under every situation. And then if something does go wrong, then what? No one takes responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. I knock over a glass of milk. It's my wife's fault because she put it there. Right? And then it's my daughter's fault because she filled it up with milk. You know, and on and on it goes. It's true. That's the society that we're living in. And that affects us. And it affects the way we think when it comes to this area of judging. In every area of our life, such as what? Our personal lives, our family lives, at work, religiously, politically, and even when it comes to our environments. Rather than check out the word of God, we are affected by such things as I've just gone through and reiterated for you. And we're affected by our own personal biases as to what we like and don't like. Sometimes it is affected in a way that is good, but sometimes it's affected in a way that is not. The difficulty in addressing the problems that arise in every area of our life, and then we'll get right to judging, is, if we're honest, we either go to one extreme and do nothing, we ignore a situation, or the tendency with all that I've just put before you is that we swing all the way to the other end of the pendulum and there's nothing in between. You know, we either ignore it and everybody and everybody's all inclusive or we go all the way to the other extreme and attack everybody and there's nothing in between. That's a tendency we also have in our life when we adjust to things. It really is. This is also true in the area of judging, unfortunately. When it comes to judging, and it comes to judging in everyday life or every situation, because of our personal biases, because of the influence of our society, which is why I took the time to reiterate such things as I did, even the scriptures revealed to us that we have a tendency to go to those two extremes. And let me just show that to you before we get into the text. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I cringe, I'm being honest with you, when I hear Christians use this verse. 
for very, very few Christians use it right. Here is the one extreme. Chapter 7, verse 1. Example. Do not judge lest ye be judged. Many who never have come to know Christ, many who know very little about Scripture, probably know two verses. One is John 3.16 because it's everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And probably, this is just an opinion, the second most well-known verse of Scripture is this one. Judge not that you be not judged. And I hear Christians use that all the time. We don't want to judge now. That is an extreme. Look at the rest of the text, which we will do later. The rest of the text basically says you need to do a right judgment. It doesn't say don't judge. You want that judgment to be right. But the tendency is that we ought to accept everything that comes along. And no matter what happens, if it's in our society acceptable, let me get very practical and get down to business as we will progress today. When you get into a situation where it's society says, hey, look, it's more economical for young people to live together when they're not married, male and female, that even the Christian turns around and accepts it. I can't judge that situation. I don't know whether it's right or wrong. Society says it's okay. Here's an example. And, and we don't want to judge. The other extreme is judging everything. And boy, are we filled with Christians that do that. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And while you turn into Luke chapter 18, let me remind you of your responsive reading this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ came upon a blind man, did he not? Yes. What was the first thing that his disciples said? Who sinned? That sinner. He's blind because he sinned. That's just the way Christians think. Automatically, something's wrong in the life because everything's supposed to go perfect. And so we judge, start judging every little thing that comes along. And we get a critical spirit and we even become cynical. In Luke chapter 18, you've got a picture of it in verses 11 to 14. In, in those passages, this passage, we read this. The Pharisee stood, you know this, he's in the temple, there's two men praying, the Pharisee, the tax collector. Look at the Pharisee. He stood and was praying thus with himself, I thank thee, Lord, I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, what a fool this guy was. Or even like, now watch the judgment, this tax collector. I'm not like that guy. Why? I fast. I read my Bible. doesn't say that in the passage. That's what we do today. I read my Bible. I pray. I give my tithes. But that person, see, for the tax collector standing some distance away, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. He knew he was a sinner. And what did he turn around and say? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Who did God justify? The simple one who bowed his head and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, these are the two extremes when it comes to judging, that we can't judge anything or that we judge every situation. And you know, Christians, sometimes when they see a person sick, they start thinking that they're sick because God's judging them. I've heard that many times. 
God was judging that person in this. How do you know that? How do you know what God was doing? Who made you omniscient so that you can judge the situation? Somebody's always facing adversity. I've seen people like that. There's adversity after adversity after adversity. Well, if they just get down to business with God, do you really know that? Or is it that God's allowing this? How about the Apostle Paul? Huh. I can imagine us in the presence of, you know, we wouldn't want to say that today, but I can imagine if we saw the Apostle Paul would say, look, at this guy's been beating with, beaten with stripes almost to the point of death. He's been shipwrecked a day and a night in the deep. Right? You look at his life, it's disaster after disaster. He's been stoned to death. When will that guy wake up and get spiritually correct? That's exactly what we would do. We don't want to say we would, but we would. And we judge every situation that comes along. We need to be careful. We are judging all the time what parents are doing. We're judging what kids have done. We judge what the leadership does all the time. We judge what ball games. We're the coach, we're the referee, we're the player and everything else while we're sitting and watching TV. That's the society we're living in. I can tell you why the team should have won last night, whatever team that is, by the way. I'll tell you why they should have won. The coach blew it. The referee made a bad call. The players didn't do this. I would have done it. Really? Yeah, that's what we do. You see, we judge that way. So we need to see there needs to be a balance. And by the way, none of that is scripturally correct to ignore everything, nor to go to the other extreme, and we start playing God and judging what everything is going on in everybody else's life because we think we're right and we get the insight when it may or may not be guided by the word of God. Well, I believe this text that we're coming to in John does help us. It doesn't give us all the answers, and we want to expound the text to you, so that's why I'm limiting, limiting it to really what the text itself deals with. But I don't, do believe it gives us the balance on how to properly judge by at least giving us the three principles that I've outlined in your bulletin. One is, we are not to call good evil. That's what happened in this text. Secondly, we are not to major on minors. That was the Pharisees. And third, the one that really gets to us is we're not to judge by appearance alone. Those are the three that are uh, given to us in this text. So let's deal with it. Judging righteous judgment, John chapter 7 in the text. In verses 20 and 21 now, you'll notice, and I read them already, so I will not repeat reading them. We come to the context where Jesus has been teaching in the temple. That's in verse 14. You can just look at it. I won't read the verse. Jesus was in their midst. He was teaching in the temple. You might recall that it was during the Feast of Booths, according to verse 2 or the Feast of Tabernacles. And you might remember also that he went up privately. He didn't go up with a caravan. That was last week's message. He went up in a private way, and he's now been in the temple, and he's got the opportunity to teach. And so he teaches the word of God to them, and they are marveling. And then what he does is he exposes their motives. Now, he can do that. We can't. Why? He's God. And he says to them, which was already evidenced and commonly known, he says, you're trying to kill me in verse 19. That's why I read it this morning. And they turn around and say, you have a demon. In other words, they were saying, sometimes used as, he's a madman. He was paranoid. 
He was delusional. Some have translated it that way in their own commentaries and so forth because it does have that connotation. He, he could be demon-possessed. He could also be thought of as just a, man, a madman that's demon-possessed and so forth. And that's the people's judgment because he was saying that he tried, the, they were trying to kill him. By the way, that was very common. Let me just look in John with you. Go to John chapter 8. You're going to see more of this, so I'll give it to you now. John chapter 8. Look at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Jesus again, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? No, he wasn't. And have a demon? There it is again. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know. Oh, they're, they're really on top of things that you have a demon. Abraham died in the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They didn't understand what he was saying, but their judgment was, again, you have a demon. And go with me to chapter 10, and you'll see the connection, what I meant by the madman connection. Chapter 10, verse 20, last verse on this. In verse 20, it says, And many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane or a mad madman. Why do you listen to him? Why are you listening to this guy? And you look at the teaching of Christ, you look at the miracles that he did, which we're going to see again in chapter 7 in our text this morning, and they were associating that with him being a demon. Absolutely improper judgment. Why? They were calling that which God had done through Jesus Christ, which was a miracle, and who Jesus Christ is, the one who Chris has referred to, all the music referred to it today, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that came down from heaven, God's gift to man. Why? We are all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. There isn't a one of us. No, not one. There's none different from the other. And God knew that. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The Lord Jesus Christ was in heaven with the Father before. That's what he's been claiming. And he came down out of the love of God. Why? To satisfy the righteousness of God and to pay the debt of sin. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin, singular, of the world. And if people could grasp that, they'd understand the extent of his death. He, it was the sin, singular, that he satisfied the righteousness of God for sin. That whosoever believeth in him, that is the mechanism by which God brings a person to salvation as God the Father draws us to the Son. What he does is he works in such a miraculous way. We've been seeing that throughout this text, that he draws a person that the Father's got to do that, and then the person comes to believe, and the appropriation is made of that sacrifice. And then what happens is a person is forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. Planned before the foundation of the world? Absolutely, yes. But that's what happened. That's who came, and that's what he did. And they were saying that this man was an evil man. They were calling that which was good evil, not only because he exposed their motives, but especially because they were concerned with the Jewish leaders and they were threatened by them. They feared the Jews. Look at verse 13. No one was speaking openly because they feared the leadership, what they would do to them. One deed had been done. What is the one deed in verse 21 that the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to them, 
I did one deed and you marvel. I believe if we look at verse 23 before we go and look at it, you'll understand what he's talking about. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, are you angry with me? And he tells you what the one deed is. Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. Now, when did that take place? Go back to chapter 5. We already studied it. Chapter 5. In chapter 5, in verse 5, you'll notice that there was a certain man that was there, watch this, who had been 38 years with this sickness. Verse 8. And Jesus said unto him, this paralytic man, take up your pallet and walk. Verse 9. And immediately he became well, took it up, took up his pallet, and began to walk. Now notice verse 9. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Where was he? Chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem. Now jump down to verse 18. Well, look at 10 for a second. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to do this. Jump down to 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That's what we have in verse chapter 7. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And we've studied that text. It was back in chapter 5 when he was in Jerusalem before. Remember, then he had gone up to Galilee. Now he's back in Jerusalem. And they saw this. And they were so focused on what? The Sabbath day. Jesus had done a good thing, they were calling it evil. To tell you that this much already, when it comes to making a judgment, we are not to call that which is good evil. Let me give you two Old Testament passages. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, for just a minute. Why say this? It relates to our society today and the impact that it's having on Christian thinking. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, watch. Woe! Woe what? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's clear. God pronounces a woe on those who would do such a thing. And I understand the context there with Isaiah and the wickedness that was going on and the Pharisees and Sadducees. But go with me to Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. And verse 15. He who justifies the wicked... Watch, and he who condemns the righteous, that's exactly what's happening in our text, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. You start calling good evil and evil good, you start calling that which is wicked good and righteous, or righteousness evil, and you are an abomination in the eyes of a holy God. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. You say, how does that apply? And then I'll talk about the fact that we are to judge. I'll tell you how it applies. 
today we are warned that you are not to speak about sin. And even Christians are backing off talking about sin. Why? Because our society says you talk about certain sins and it's a hate crime. Sin is sin. It doesn't matter what society thinks. We are not to go hating people. That is not what I'm saying. But we're to be careful because our society says if you speak out against certain sins, it is a hate crime. No, it's not. Sin is sin. And Christians are backing off because society is calling that which is good, that is to call sin for what it is, is evil. And then it's turning around and saying that it's a hate crime to do that. That's wrong. Let me give you another practical application, just because it affects our life. We here in our society, it's absolutely wrong to profile. Are you kidding me? Profiling protects lives. And you need to be aware of situations. No, we're not to use it in a wrong way. For example, in an, in an environment at work so we don't pay a wage because a person is a certain uh, uh, nationality or what? Not at all. We shouldn't be doing that. Everything should be fair. But the concept of profiling in the time of war and so forth, that protects lives, my friend. Don't worry about what society says. We have it with prayer. Prayer is being pulled out of our society, except when it's convenient. And except when it's politically correct to throw out the word prayer so you win the religious crowd. But pull it into a public school and so forth, get it out. That's the concept. That is calling something that is good evil. To not allow people to talk about Christ. To not allow people to give the gospel. Now, you are not to abuse work. You are not to abuse situations. But to silence the gospel, which is the best news that we have, is wrong. And we're told that it's wrong to speak it out. It gets into practical situations, folks. Yes, there is abuse that goes on in families. Absolutely no question. And listen to me carefully. And it's not only on audio tape, it's on videotape. Listen to me carefully. There, I am never going to approve of someone that abuses people. But what was that resulted in? Going to the other extreme where you can't even have corporal punishment to your own children by way of spanking because they say it's wrong. The scripture says it's right. What happens in our society is we are filled with a situation where things that are right are being called wrong and Christians are adapting to it. We need to make judgments. We are called to make judgments. Listen to some passages. I have a bunch, and because I want to get to the other points, I'm not going to get to them all. I might give you a few of them. But Hebrews 5, listen to this. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. Solid food... And I'll give you the application I have here. But solid food is for the mature. Why? Because of the practice of their senses trained in discerning good and evil. What it says is the mature person, the mature Christian, is able to discern what is right and what is wrong based upon the scriptures. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says that we are to test the spirits. It's speaking about false prophets. We are to test them. People think we shouldn't judge anything. 
you better judge what I'm saying right now. And if what I say is wrong, I am to be rebuked for it. Because someone stands in a pulpit or someone's teaching a Bible class, we don't accept everything that comes along. We test it against the scriptures. 2 John 10 and 11 says when someone comes knocking to your door and they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they don't believe that he's the Messiah, don't let him into your home. Our society would say, oh, yeah, no, it's okay. It's all right. Not at all. Galatians chapter 1 is pretty strong. If anyone preaches any other gospel than the gospel that I, you have heard, let him be anathema, cursed. That's pretty strong. We are to judge. You know, there's, there's other passages. In Luke chapter 1, there's so many passages that deal with judgment. You and I need to judge things every day in life. If you don't think that's so, then I'll tell you what. Just let your children go out and play in traffic, and don't worry. And you would never do that. If you don't think you have to make judgments, go home and start drinking poison. And I'm not recommending you to do that, in case I'm taken wrong on that. Of course you're making judgments. You ought to judge in every area of life. You ought to make a judgment right now. That's one of the problems. You need to understand that you need to make a judgment regarding Jesus Christ. He either is the Son of God or he's not. He either is the Messiah or he's not. You're either going to hold on to religion or nothing at all, or you're going to listen to what God says where he says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to God, and you're either going to believe it or you're not. That's a judgment. We ought to teach the word of God. Why? Ephesians chapter 4 makes it very clear. The saints are to be trained to do the work of the ministry. Why? It jumps down into the next verse so you won't be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, and that's where the majority of Christendom is today. The doctrines that come along, they can't make a right judgment because they don't know what the word of God says. And if something sounds good, they take it in. Listen, don't call good evil and evil good. You need to make a judgment. How can I do that? By knowing the scriptures. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow by it. If you are my disciples, you will continue in my word. Then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. By knowing the word of God, we will know how to make a proper judgment. Secondly, to move it along, go back to John chapter 7. That's just verse 20 and 21. In verses 20 and 22, don't major on minors. How in the world did you come up with that, Pastor Dan? I don't really know. It's just studying the passage and it came out. All right? But what have you got? It says, on account of Moses. By the way, I want to properly deal with the text. That's an interesting statement. I'll tell you why. Let me give you some of your theologians some things to chew on here. That could possibly be taken to mean it was an account of the very thing that the Lord Jesus is dealing with here, that Moses gave the law of the Sabbath day and the circumcision. Because of the very thing that's in front of them right now is why he gave that law. But at any rate, on account of this, Moses had given you circumcision or for this reason. Now, Moses did not truly give 
the circumcision. It came through Abraham. That's why you have the explanation, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. But I want you to understand something, that even the law that came through Moses does not break the covenants of God. Just in the New Testament, for example, in Galatians. Just go to there for a second. You might want to see this. In Galatians chapter 3. verse 17. What I am saying is this, the Apostle Paul said, the law, which came 430 years later, this was after the promises of Abraham, so it's right in the context of what we're dealing with. It says, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And what he was trying to bring out here, even Galatians, listen, because you got the law of Moses that came out because the Jews were putting preference on that and so forth. That doesn't nullify all the promises that were made to Abraham. Now, in our context, it was through Abraham in Genesis 17, if you want the passage for your own reference. In Genesis 17, that God gave to Abraham circumcision and said that all the generations that follow, this would be an everlasting covenant to show that they were the people of God. And so he gave them circumcision. They were to circumcise the male child on the eighth day. And then that was reiterated by Moses. And I'll give you the references for time. I won't turn there. Leviticus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 20. In Leviticus chapter 12, Moses repeated that you had to circumcise the child on the eighth day. And then in Exodus chapter 20, the reference I gave you, he said the Sabbath is to be kept holy and absolutely no work. Now, did Moses not know what he was talking about? Did he have a confliction there where there was a conflict and, and he violated the Sabbath? No, not at all. And that's the context. Because in verses 20 and tw 22 and 23, that's what he's saying to them. He says, you had both of those things. In verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, the law of Moses may not be broken, Right? Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath day? What was going on here? He had healed on the Sabbath, and they were saying, you can't do any work, and yet they knew that if a child came into the world and the circumcision for the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, they circumcised the child anyway because God commanded it. Now, God wasn't going contrary to what he said before, right? No, they just misunderstood the use of the law, and they misunderstood the Sabbath day. They were not breaking the law. The problem was, and by the way, so you, so you understand the context, what he means by entirely making a man well, he's basically saying this very bluntly. He's saying you end up circumci circumcising a male child and one part of the body is made right. I've made the entire body of this guy right. And you're condemning me because it's on the same day? Examine your thinking. What was the problem? The Sabbath day, in my opinion, was the pet, P-E-T, of the Jews. The Jewish leaders, anything that went wrong on the Sabbath day, they attacked people. That was their little pet to hold on to. That was their theological theme that they never let go. And what happened was it went over and over and over again. And you know what they really fell into? This is why I call it majoring on minors. Let me read to you Matthew. You can mark the reference down if you want, but Matthew 23. Let me give you the assessment of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 23 and 24. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, now listen to this, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. And those were the largest, by the way, and the smallest animals for purposes of the unclean animals. And he took the extreme. And he said, basically, you're majoring on the minors, as I put it. And that can happen. Today, it happens all the time. We have people that are majoring on minors, and they're making improper judgments. Let me give you an example that I'm going to read to you this morning because it absolutely is astounding, and I don't think you would believe me unless I was reading directly from the source. Listen to this. This is, in my opinion, majoring on minors. The article has to do with the Covenant Presbyterian Church. And it has to do with a pastor, so-called reverend, by the name of Egabin. Egabin. Here's what he did. Listen. He came up with a hair-raising idea. He would turn God's house into a doghouse. I am literally quoting this. Now listen to me all the way through. Please don't turn away. He would turn God's house into a doghouse by offering a 30-minute service complete with individual doggy beds, canine prayers, and offering dog treats. He hopes it will reinvigorate the church's connection with the community, provide solace for the elderly members, and possibly attract new worshipers. End quote. And basically they go on where the traditional Christian service now is to believe, listen to this, right from it, Christians traditionally believe that only humans have redeemable souls. But now they've moved into animals being redeemed in souls. And in case you think this is way out in left field, listen to this one paragraph. It's now referring to she, who is Laura Oster, one of the ones that are quoted here, she recently did a survey and found that more than 500 blessings of animals at churches nationwide has been heard of a half dozen congregations holding worship services like that of Egabines, including one in Boston, Massachusetts, called the Woof and Worship Service. That, to me, I am, this gets my goat. My hair stands up when I see this stuff. Why? Majoring on minors. People want to get people in a church over animals. And in case you think I'm a dog hater or an animal hater, that is not the case. Anyone that knows me, my upbringing, I grew up with every almost animal you can name. Dog, cat, fish, all, I won't even get into it all. I had them all. It's not that at all. But to put that so that a service is going to elevate Worshipping for animals above the word of God? People are elevating today music, teen ministries, youth ministries above the word of God. Their major is a minor. The King James Only Movement, I'm not going to have too many friends after this message. The King James Only Movement, in my opinion, is a major that's on a minor, on a minor. 
and is dividing churches all over the country. Whether a Christian should go to a movie or a dance is a minor, and to some of you it may not be, but you're majoring on minors. And that's what happens. It's a danger. We have it all the time. We have events, and by the way, it's true. It happens with me as well. We have events, and people come in, and we get 50 extra guests, but because they didn't sign up, we get all upset. We're majoring on minors. We ought to be rejoicing at what God's doing. We're upset because the list wasn't filled out. It's the truth. And by the way, that is no excuse not to sign up next time <laughs> we have a list. Okay? We have to be careful because it is part of planning. I hope you see the message that I'm getting across here. Okay? The point is, this stuff we need to be careful with. Don't major on minors. What is your pet area that rather than fighting for the unity of the body of Christ and the bond of peace, according to Ephesians, you're helping divide it because you're majoring on some minor area. Now, I'm not talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about the resurrection. We're talking about those areas that are pet peeves in which churches are divided and the emphasis. The priority, listen to me, and this, goes, this is going out, I know, on the TV. The priority of any church that is worth its salt should be this book in the services. The music is vital. The prayer time is vital. But it is the word of God that is going to strengthen us. It is the word of God that's going to keep us from being tossed to and fro. It is the word of God that's going to help us to grow and have discernment about what is right and wrong in spite of our own biases and in spite of what society has influenced us with. We need the word of God. We need to be fed. We need to be taught so that we can make proper judgments. Don't major on minors. I've got to get to the last one because it's verse 24. And that is don't judge according to appearance. Look at verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Do you see that? It doesn't say don't judge. That's one extreme. It doesn't say judge every circumstance without all the facts. That's another extreme. Judge it righteously. And it's a present imperative here. They would have stopped doing what they were doing. They would have stopped it. And I believe this is where the fall of most of us is. We judge according to appearance. For the sake of time, let me give you a couple of things quickly. There are those who would walk into a church, for example, let me use this one, and see a drum sitting in the church, and they'd walk out. Why? Because there's a drum, that church is off in left field. Really? That's a good judgment. That's judging righteous judgment. There are some who would walk in and find out that we use a certain version of the Bible, and they'd walk out. Now, I'm one who studied and given you the information on various translations, and there's a number of good ones. And by the way, the King James is a very good version. I'm not shooting that down. But to just live off versions of Bibles is a minor. And to judge by that alone is an appearance factor. There are some who, based upon a missionary support and where they've gone right away without investigating anything will shut them off and cut them off. There are those who will look at the way a person's dressed 
I just happen to wear this because my generation came up with this, and I think this is a proper setting to wear a shirt and tie. There are some that are more relaxed or whatever. We judge sometimes by appearance. And if the person isn't dressed the way I'm dressed or has their hair the way I've had my hair up and so forth, whatever hair there is left and so forth, we all of a sudden pass a judgment. They can't be a good Christian, really. Let me tell you something. I've met some fine people that had some spiked hair that I didn't want to get too close because I might get injured by their hair. But the fact is, they had, a, I'm, I'm being honest with you, had a good testimony. There are other people who, that's the way they dress, and we judge that way. It's wrong. That's James. Someone comes into the church and they dress nice, I'll put them up front. Someone else is dressed poorly, you sit them in the back. That's hypocritical. Absolutely hypocritical. And we need to judge properly. The Lord Jesus Christ was judged that way. When he was sitting with tax collectors, they said, oh, look at him. He's sitting down with tax collectors. Yeah, that's right. Why? They needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a woman that was teary-eyed and dripping with tears and wiped his feet. Who that they said, uh, if they knew who she was. He knew who she was. He wouldn't even let her, he wouldn't even let her touch her. Really? The other guy needed salvation. This woman was broken in spirit because she was before the God of the universe, the Savior of the world. 1 Samuel 16, 7 addresses that, by the way, when it says that man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And by the way, you've seen how strong I've been. That's no excuse that things don't change in the outside because we're a new creation. That doesn't mean everybody dresses up in suits. But what I'm saying is changes will take place in the life because the person has been changed on the inside. Change is not according to society, but according to God working in the life. Where maybe a life that was cursing God all the time now has a voice that's singing praises to him because he's got a new song in his heart. We are judging all the time. Haven't you seen that? Haven't you done it honestly in your own life? Don't raise your hand. Well, that person went there. That person, you see what they just did? I don't think they're saved. What right have you got to judge them? How do we know you're saved? When you're sick, do you want somebody to come to you and say, you're kidding yourself. You think you were sick because of everybody else. God judged your life. I can see it as clear as a bell. If somebody did that to your life, you'd be the first one to scream. And you'd be the first one to do it to somebody else. That's not judging, righteous judgment. Let me give you two quick examples, by the way. With the Lord himself, God is omniscient, is he not? You know what happened in Babel? I'll give you the passage and I won't turn there. In Genesis 11.5, God already knew what was going on. Do you know what he said? It's interesting to me. He said, let us go down and see the condition. He knew what it was, but he wanted to see before he destroyed them. You think that's unique? You know what he did in Genesis 18? He already sent the message, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 18, uh, in verse 21, I wanted to make sure I got it right in my notes here. In verse 21, God said, let us go see the condition outside. God did that. You know, Solomon, most people know that situation in 1 Kings. One woman said, that's my baby. The other woman said, that's my baby. He listened to the first one. He was in trouble. 
This touches upon another big area of our life, and it's called gossip. Ooh, it's called rumors. All the time in the Christian circle, I've seen it for over 30 years. People hear one side of a story, and they've already drawn all their conclusions about what has happened. Turn with me to Proverbs 18 before we close. And then I'm going to close with one other passage. Proverbs 18, 17. Eighteen seventeen. By the way, chapter 14, 15 is another reference out of Proverbs, but I'm going to just look at the one in eighteen seventeen. The first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. That is so practical. And what I'm saying is don't listen to one side of an argument. Always listen to both. Same thing as a husband and wife. Same thing with your children. Same thing with a teacher. How do we, how, there's, the, there's the practicality of it. Student comes home, my teacher, I didn't even turn around. I didn't do anything, and I got two detentions. And the first thing that happens, <laughs> phone rings. What did you do to my kid? Well, would you like to sit in that classroom with the teacher for a little bit and see what the teacher could have done to your child? You see, our child does not, they don't do anything wrong. I've had five perfect children, right. I was, my mother had seven perfect children, right. Yeah, not at all. But that's the way we think. We never want to hear the whole story. Because if we hear the whole story, it might change the way we view a situation. We need to be careful. The last passage I'll go to is the one we started with. Go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll finish here. And let me wrap up what we saw in John. What happened in John, the Lord wanted them to judge righteous judgment. He wasn't filled with the demon at all. He made a proper judgment. He knew the whole situation. He healed the blind man. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, the impotent man. It was on the Sabbath day. That part of it was correct. But it wasn't all the information. God hadn't violated any law. Moses' law allowed for that. That's why I say on the, because of this condition. I think that's what it might have been saying. God allowed for things like that to happen. Okay, and what happened was they were not judging a righteous judgment and they were in danger of judgment themselves. What you have here in Matthew chapter 7, just to wrap it up, go beyond verse 1. For in the way that you judge, get that, in the way you judge, you will be judged. Your standard of measure will be the way you're measured. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? And this is the condition mostly of our own hearts. And we got a log in our own eye. What a picture. Rather than take that little splinter out of your brother's eye, you've got this tree that's sitting in your eye and you're making all kinds of judgments about your brother. That's what it says. But notice what he goes on to say. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye? You hypocrite, verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take. You see, he doesn't say don't judge. Just do it the right way. Examine yourself first. Self-examination is a good thing. Judging every situation is a good thing if you do it rightly. And how do I do it rightly? How do you do it rightly? By doing it in accordance with the word of God. So often we are calling good evil. So often our society is doing that. So often we major on minors and it causes disruption. And so often we judge by the mere appearance of something when if we had all the facts, we wouldn't judge it that way. And the whole point that the Lord had for them was to judge righteous judgment. 
You need to do that with the person of Jesus Christ. It's up to you to judge. The world says he's a good man. That was our context last week, remember? Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a good teacher. The word of God says he's God, very God, son of God, the only way of salvation. You need to make a judgment. Are you going to trust God in his word? Or are you going to trust society? Are you going to trust the changing of society that goes on and on and on? You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who came to satisfy the righteousness of God and pay the penalty for sin. If you believe on him, you'll have the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of your sin. If you don't, you'll go with that judgment. It won't be a right one, but you will spend eternity in hell. Society doesn't want to hear that, but that's the truth. And fellow believer, judge, examine teachers, examine circumstances, examine people, but do it right, not according to appearance. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you for the word of God. I thank you for our text. I know it's a challenge to my own heart. Every day we make judgments. Oh, Father, forgive us for those areas where we've judged people, circumstances, incorrectly because we jump to a conclusion, sometimes because we've only heard one side of an argument, sometimes because it goes contrary to our pet area of life, and we don't like what we hear. And unfortunately, sometimes because things that are really good, we end up calling evil. Oh, Father, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to make judgments, but to make righteous judgments. We thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to walk humbly with our God. Help us to cherish the word of God, to feed off it daily, that we might grow, that we might be able, as we saw in Hebrews this morning, to discern both good and evil by making proper judgments in accordance with the word. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.